Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. And we're online again instead of the studio because Mr. Harvey has more important things to do than to make me drive all the way out here to the studio. This is true. I, I do. No, it's, I, I've got a Fringe Festival. The Kansas City Fringe Festival is coming up uh, in July. And June is fast approaching. And uh, consequently, we have deadlines. Uh, and I have an opportunity to talk to I'm, I'm editing a, a, a really fantastic one-man show. And uh, I have a chance to connect and talk to my, you know, send, uh, sending off the first part of about a third of the film to uh, the, the actor. And so we can start having the back and forth that goes with this sort of thing where I go and he says, can you do this? And I say, no. And, and I say, <laughs> I like this angle. And he goes, I don't like that angle. And, you know, all the fun stuff that goes with this, it's, that's, that's the entertaining part. Right. Once you get past your own decisions and collaboration, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm what do you mean you it, want to do it that way? We don't want to do it that way. It's <laughs> fascinating. And, and, you know, this is interesting because, of course, we have, it's all video calls now, which is great. Yeah. Because uh, years ago, and you came out and did some behind-the-scenes footage. I did a music video uh, for an artist who lives in California. And I live in Kansas City. So it was all email. And so I would do an edit, and I would send it out. And then I'd get an email back. And, and it dragged the process <laughs> so much. And just that, you know, and having the ability to sit there and, you know, do this with video and, and, and watch it together. And, yeah. and you know, that's... It's really a, a neat opportunity for collaboration um, that we just didn't have a few years ago, really. Um, so, yeah. So, yes, apologies, folks, not in the studio. No. Um, but uh, uh, for, for noble reasons, it's for art. I'm doing it for the art. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of art. See what I did there? The classic American literary scene... Some consider artistic. You have authors like uh, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And who else is on that list besides those guys? And then there's there's John Steinbeck, and we're going to get into that one in a minute. But who else, who else is in that landscape? Because I was drawing a blank. Well, I mean, you're looking at... Because um, it's such a range, really. Uh, of when you look at, because um, you've got you know that contemporary American literature is a is is kind of this nebulous thing. There's a time period where you have these uh, this certain group of authors who were kind of contemporaries. Mm -hmm. um, um, oh. Well, but you, you, when you when you start Henry, thinking about the early it? 20th century, you've got F. Scott Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Hemingway, uh, Steinbeck, uh, uh, Salinger, yeah, uh, Judy Salinger, um, Ralph Ellison. Who was the one? Um, who was the one in the in the uh, in the in the 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 polygamy? Uh, the what was his? There was a. It was the first NC seventeen movie. They did the the story about them. Uh, um, 
uh, Henry and June. Henry and June is the name of the film. Is that was that who was that about? Yeah, uh, that's. Uh, um, is that a, uh, that's not about Faulkner? That's uh, Anise Nin was the woman, and um, it is for heaven's sakes. It's Anise Nin and Henry Miller. Ah, Henry Miller. Yeah. Okay. Fred. Right. Yeah. Fred Ward playing Henry Miller. Yeah, and it's a great movie. If you if you've never seen the film, it's it's really well done. Uh, NC seventeen for the time. Now it doesn't. I mean, it's a it's an adult oriented movie. Yeah. And it's it's certainly not. It's certainly uh, got its share of, of language and, and and nudity, but it's. You know, it's the the pros of that film far outweigh the cons, and just the performances. Performances mm-hmm. are really fantastic. So all of those authors, I haven't read that much. I will admit. Um, I I read To Kill a Mockingbird in high school. I read everybody was required. To. That's right. I read The Great Gatsby in high it's school. Also the law, yeah, because we had to. Otherwise, I never, I have never gotten into that period of time in the American literary scene. Now, you also have the pulps and the detective fiction and all that other stuff that was going on at the same time. But it's a, it's a, it's a different category of literary work. I mean, I've got Dashiell Hammett in my library. I don't have any F. Scott Fitzgerald or Faulkner or, or um, well, who's, you know, who's, who's Leaves of Grass. The poet, um, Walt, Walt, Whitman. Walt Whitman. Yeah, I don't have any of that stuff. It never interested me. So I think that there's, we, we come back to to one of the things we've mentioned this before, uh, Moby Dick. Okay, Ugh. it's it's this incredible genre changing novel. However, it's not necessarily an appealing novel for a, a good section of the modern audience. <laughs> and some of that comes out of, of what this stuff does to change literature at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the great, the quote unquote great American novel, which a lot of these books fall into that category of you know, how they describe it, that, that subsection of literary uh, fiction is that they had something new to say. Yeah. At a time when, you know, it just wasn't, people weren't talking like this. They weren't writing like this. They weren't hitting, they weren't talking. Subject matter was was just not being written about. And it goes through ways because a lot of popular fiction, um, you know, genre does it too, goes through waves. And, you know, you, there's... Um, whether you enjoy this stuff or not, and you're far from alone in, in not having this stuff appeal to you. There are a lot of people this stuff doesn't appeal to, but it also, whether or not it appeals to a modern audience, a lot of times that's not the point. (laughs) The point (laughs) is, is that it changed literature at the time. And you consider somebody like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, you think about you know you can think of his 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 stories are often very funny, but they're often very very dark, and they've also got a lot of social commentary in them. Yeah. And at the time, you know, and and people didn't consider him to be a great novelist uh, a lot of the time, 
And then people realized he was, and he had influenced so many other authors. He's a different kind of the, writing the great American novel. And I think really you look at somebody like Vonnegut and you start to see that, that change in how some of this stuff becomes more accessible to an audience right broader than than say the books because i mean there, you know literary fiction you know there's there's literary fiction over here and there's genre over here except that's not true <laughs> it's not remotely true uh literary fiction generally speaking is just stories about people that doesn't fall into a specific genre and genre stuff is stories about people that oh someone is murdered that makes and nobody knows who did it that's a mystery yeah oh someone went to space that's a science fiction novel oh someone went to a place with elves that's i mean it's they're all stories about people but you and i and a lot of genre fans happen to really like <laughs> those stories about the person who gets on the spaceship and the person who goes to the realm and discovers that, you know, magic is real and, uh, you know, discovers that, you know, uncle Philip has a dark secret that, you know, deep beneath the, the house that, you know, you used to visit as a child is an infinite cavern with doors to other realms. You know, I mean, there's, we like that stuff. Yeah. And um, now, There is no question that there is a, that the genre world, uh, I think largely because it grew out of the pulps, that it grew out of the, the, the penny dreadfuls, the one sheets, mm -hmm. all the, it grew out of the cheap stuff for the common person. Yeah. It wasn't designed to be read by the people who have education. It was designed to be read for, the guy who works at the butcher shop and the guy who works in the factory and the lady who works as a seamstress. And, you know, this is the stuff we were getting back and, you know, well, here's, and here's the dichotomy is that so is Shakespeare. I mean, this is like, you know, the great playwright. Yeah. If you ever, if you ever sit down and read Shakespeare, it is full of dirty jokes. It is full of, punchlines it's full of lowbrow humor because he's writing for the crowd yeah uh because that's who came to the shows the, the higher the, the upper class slummed <laughs> to go <laughs> to go to the globe you know i mean it's it, the vast majority of your audience was the common person who didn't have an education so this stuff you know the the that's just some of the stuff that comes out of class, you know, where yeah. we're wealthy and you're not, therefore we're better. That's that kind of factors into it's it. And we see it play out in, in the idea of, you know, genre films getting Oscars. Yeah, it's it's that mindset that says, you know, we're, well, we're, see, this is, this is higher quality yeah, as opposed to for the common person. The thing is I've, I've always been one of those people who just uh, never really, got into that particular mode of thought only not, not I'm better than this or I'm, you know, this is beneath me or anything like that. But anytime I've had to read 
classic American literature. You know, there's that nose in the air, hoity-toity, you know, where the, I guess where the we're better than you comes off of not necessarily the, the work itself, but the attitude about the work. And, you know, you have, well, the great Gatsby. Is, <laughs> well, and I'm like, see, that's a great example because the great Gatsby is a rags to riches story. I know, and but it's I, also, but, it, I, but it's all, but, it's, but that's like, that's like one of the great American, and this is one of the reasons I think it was very popular, is that it's one of those, uh, it's, that's the great American dream, right? Sure. We all can become rags to riches, despite the fact that that's not how it works. I mean, it, it happened, it, the, the folks who, there are folks who pull it off. There's no question. Yeah. But there was this myth that was built up, especially in the 20th century. I just, I, I just never, I never got into that book. I didn't. I guess for me, the biggest the biggest thing about the great the great Gatsby is I didn't care about any of these people. Well, so here's the thing about great literature <laughs> and genre literature is that there's there's some there's some literary fiction that is really wonderful at getting you inside the mind of someone and inside their lives in a way that's very engaging and entertaining and absorbing. And I think some of that really comes about when it's written and where you are in your life. Because we don't exist in the time that The Great Gatsby takes place. So there's there's an automatic barrier and and, yeah. I, and I know that there, you, know, you can sit there and say, Bob, but historical fiction. Yeah, well, sometimes historical fiction is the same problem. If you can't connect with those characters, and quite frankly, The Great Gatsby is full of people who are are just swimming in disposable cash. Their their worldview is so divorced from anything I've ever experienced. Yeah. That my and and consequently their their own internal compasses are not something that I can relate to. So I don't enjoy the book because quite frankly, you're right. I don't care about any of the characters. Yeah. But again, so much of this stuff, it was new and groundbreaking at the time. Doesn't mean it's, you know, enjoyable now. (laughs) Yeah, but but see the thing about it is though you you go back and you look at other other works uh, you know things that are not necessarily classic American literature. You look at something like uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, for example, or Les Misérables, where you have you have a lead character, and essentially it's the same story. You have this character, and I was able to actually empathize with a lot of the characters that were in those stories. And I don't know if it's because they're written in a different time period and it's further back, so now there's a little bit of romanticism that goes with it as well. Well, there's some of that, yeah. But... Uh, well, just, okay, yeah. no, but that's fair because, the, because you know, uh, Count of Monte Cristo... Uh, the Three Musketeers, Alexander Dumas. Yeah. Um, you look at uh, uh, you know Les Misérables, the edited version as opposed to the one that's two <laughs> times longer. That's all <laughs> politics because it was a political novel. Yeah. Uh, we we we. The, if you've ever seen the musical, you've seen 
30% of the story. Oh, yeah. And yeah. It's, a, it's the 30% that's actually a plot as opposed to, uh-huh. and now let me discuss my political theories. Um, but I had I had a much easier time with with Jean Valjean and the 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 situation that he was in, and you know Edmond Dante's the same way. Where, but those are outside of the theory; those are written for the common person. Yeah, they're they're pulp novels of their time. Exactly. They're adventure stories, and I think that that the the, the in many ways, genre fiction comes down to being a kind of adventure story, mm-hmm. and we. I think a lot of science fiction fans, horror fans, uh, mystery fans, romance fans, mm. like stepping outside of our own life into a world that is a bit of an adventure, an adventure for the for the characters and the author playing in a world that we don't know. Yeah. Whereas in some respects, some of the great American novels are almost too rooted in the reality that was of that time or, or in the world that we know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, I, I'm living in that world. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I don't need to read about it. I, I walk out and see it every day. Well, and that's the other thing too. You know, you, you talk about, you know, when I, when I say that, that kind of Monte Cristo and, and Les Miserables are pretty much the, essentially the same story. You also have that same kind of thing play out with great expectations and I didn't enjoy Great Expectations nearly as much as I enjoyed the other two. And I don't know if it's because of how the whole thing played out. It's well, less of an adventure. It, yeah, it, it, there's nothing in that. So it's not as exciting. Yeah, it doesn't take you out as, of yourself as much. And I think that I think that while some people can be taken out of themselves by some of these. Uh, contemporary set novels, whether it's contemporary right now, right now, um, or is it, uh, uh, you know, um, contemporary at the time. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly, you know, this is not, this is not to tell anybody who enjoys this stuff that you're wrong. Obviously, if you enjoy this stuff, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, obviously it has an audience. It's been around for a long time. It wouldn't be there if people were buying the books. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think that that there's a, the reason that genre even exists is because there are people who wanted something else. Yeah. Well, and I think if you look at something like The Grapes of Wrath, for example, one of Steinbeck's works, I probably would have been more interested in it if it had been set on Mars instead of, you know, sure. The Great Depression. Because mm-hmm. I had family who lived through the Great Depression. I heard stories about the Great Depression. I I don't need to read about one of the one of the worst economic times in our country's history. I you know, I, I've heard about that. You know, and it it doesn't it, it doesn't hold any interest for me. And I, I guess I I guess that makes me maybe a, a a literary philistine of sorts, but I've never read the grapes of wrath. I've never read of mice and men. I just, I, it, I don't care. So I, I, I've read both of them. I've seen what two or three different versions of mice and men. I've seen it as a stage show. Uh, I've seen two different film versions, um, red grapes of wrath, seen the film. Um, 
and they're fine. I mean, I like a good drama. I, I, you know, I, I, as much as I love a genre, I like a good drama films on it. They're very entertaining. Yeah. Um, just the same way I like, you know, a romantic comedy or, or, or a pratfall comedy or whatever. Um, and so I had to read The Grapes of Wrath in high school. And I don't, it's a well-written book. I mean, it's it's a well-written book. It tells a it tells a story. It's engaging, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't. And again, this comes back to personal taste, folks. It all comes back to personal taste, right? There's there's so much literature out there. There's something for you. Yeah. Uh, and are you going to be a philistine with me? You know, I, I don't. I, again, we we come back to this idea that. Um, and it, it's artificial, right? And it's created by the publishers, right? And 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 let's face it, folks, it's a way to sell product. Yeah. All right. This is this is why this exists. All right. This is this is so the publishers can make money. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's their job. That's mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do. As an author who has a contract with the publisher, you want them to make money because that means you make money. So this is important, right? But it's it's a way for them to categorize their stuff. Yeah. So they can market that stuff to you. And because the great American novel or these great works of literature have been built up over time, over time, and because so many of them did change how we consume literature at the time, um, you know, these are the great novels. Right. And because they can market them as that way, you can sit there and go, oh, I should read this, the great novel. And then if you don't like it, you don't enjoy it, there's this sort of built-in thing that I, I didn't I didn't like the great novel. Mm-hmm. You feel guilty almost. <laughs> well, and, and you feel like somehow you don't, you know, you're not good enough. Um, well, did and, I did I miss something? I didn't right. like it. What what did I did I did do I have to read it again? Did I do I need to stand stand on my head and and see what, which is, what do which I is, what am I missing? Again, yeah. you know, again, folks, once again, consider the fact that William Shakespeare, <laughs> everybody's you know, the greatest playwright, you know, for for so many people, and he was writing for the folks who couldn't read. No, he was writing for the folks who barely were out of work. He was writing for the folks who we're buying the penny seats because you know, he knew, he knew that, that you don't target your audience. I mean, you can, there's nothing wrong. I mean, genre writers do it too, right? You've got your, you've got your folks who are writing for supernatural horror or space opera or hard science. Everybody writes their niche, but you know, the, the, the great American novel, all these big works of literature, they're certainly worthwhile. There's certain some some wonderful stuff in there, but it's perfectly fine if you don't engage with it. I mean, I would much rather read Kurt Vonnegut because he makes me laugh than I would want to go back and say read F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, see, I I I was the only one in my class when we read The Good Earth by by Pearl S. Buck, Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, I thought it was a decent story i i kind of enjoyed it and everybody else was like oh this is terrible this is terrible this is a boring book i was like 
I I kind of I kind of enjoyed it, which kind of made me wonder. Again, it goes back to that. What did I miss? You know what? What is it you, that I'm seeing that that other people are not, or what am I not seeing that other people well, see? I, I think people forget that literature is a relationship between one person and one other person. Yeah, it's between the writer and you, and it's like any relationship that you have in your life. There are folks that you are close to. There are folks that you know, and there are folks you don't know. And we all have at least at some point in your life, you've known someone who everybody loves and you just <laughs> don't care for them. You don't yeah. hate them. They're not, you don't, you don't look at them and think this is an awful person. You think I just don't engage with this person. I don't care. Everybody surrounds them. And they're like, oh, so-and-so has arrived. And you're like, I don't, okay, great. Yeah. Literature is like that too. I mean, it's 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 a relationship between the writer and the reader. And that's a one-on-one relationship. And I think it's really easy. It can be easy to forget that if you get caught up in the marketing. Well, and it's also easy to uh, lose that relationship if you get authors who do something unexpected. If you, if, you know, I'm, you know, I've been writing, I've been writing horror for the last 12 years. Now I'm going to write a romantic comedy. And everybody goes, what? Huh? Huh? Which, uh, exactly. which takes us to our, uh, the end of our 30 minute setup. Now we can, we can, uh, <laughs> tell you the story. This, uh, this is in the guardian and it's been reported in other places. I want to say that the a guardian lot of different places, place. But uh, the headline here, John Steinbeck's estate urged to let the world read his shunned werewolf novel. And I thought, hang on, John Steinbeck, of all people, wrote a werewolf book? (sighs) Reading from the article here, years before becoming one of America's most celebrated authors... John Steinbeck wrote at least three novels which were never published. Two of them were destroyed by the young writer as he struggled to make his name, but a third, a full-length mystery werewolf story entitled Murder at Full Moon, has survived unseen in an archive ever since being rejected for publication in 1930. Now wrap your head around that for a minute. John Steinbeck, early in his career writes a murder mystery involving a werewolf. Okay. You know what that tells you? Steinbeck was a genre fan. Yeah. Because you could do a murder mystery without a werewolf. Sure. Why would you involve a werewolf? Because uh, werewolves? Yeah. Uh, continuing here, now a British academic is calling for the Steinbeck estate to finally allow the publication of the work written almost a decade before masterpieces such as The Grapes of Wrath, his epic about the Great Depression and the struggles of migrant farm workers. Uh, this is Professor Gavin Jones. He's a specialist in American literature at Stanford University. He says, quote, there would be a huge public interest in a totally unknown werewolf novel by one of the best known, most read American writers of the 20th century. He says, this is a novel that really nobody knows about. It's a complete novel by Steinbeck. It's incredible. Uh, The article says here, the 233-page typescript has been stored in the vast archives 
of the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin after Steinbeck's unsuccessful attempt to have it published more than 90 years ago. He submitted this for publication in 1930, which would have been right... When, when, was, when was Bram Stoker's Dracula published? 18-something? 1890-something. Okay, so it would have been one of these, hey, I'm a kid, I read one of these first editions type of thing. I mean, that's not very far removed from the beginning of the horror and science fiction genres to begin with. You could easily see him growing up reading Frankenstein and Sherlock Holmes stories and Dracula and, you know, any, any of those, those big influential genre titles. Well, when was, Uh, when was the first Worldcon? This year is 70, Worldcon 78 this year. So that would have been Worldcon one was nineteen. I have to look that up now. Now I'm curious because because if if you're looking at a if you're looking at an author in the in, who's who's written a night a book in 1930, then okay, it started in 1939. So this predates Worldcon, mm. but not by much. Not by much. No. And you have you have the literary world poo-pooing uh, genre science fiction, the the pulp stuff. I wonder, but that that may be why he wrote this under a pseudonym. This is not a John Steinbeck story. Well, and and of course, at the early stages of your career, yeah. You're doing a lot of experimenting. And yeah. so there's a lot of authors who will write stuff under pseudonyms at the early stages of their career. And some will just do it to explore different genres entirely. I mean, of course, Stephen King, um, you know, was writing under Richard Bachman mm-hmm. uh, for some of the books that were outside of the horror genre he was playing with. Um, and so, and and they were darker and, and much more... Um, I don't know, in some cases unpleasant. Um, and so, you know, he did them under Bachman's name. And uh, you still see that today. Um, was it J.D. Robb, who is a mm-hmm. science fiction author? Yeah. Um, also known as Nora Roberts, one of the greatest romance authors she, in history. Doesn't she have something like five or six pseudonyms or, or something like she that. She writes I mean, a lot of different stuff, but stuff. she, she made her name as a, as a romance, uh, a romance author. Yeah. And then <clears throat> this JD Robb started showing up <clears throat> and, uh, people were like, Oh, this is, you know, and, and Nora Roberts rips off her mask and goes, ha ha. <laughs> and they all went, oh, a romance author has written science fiction, whatever mm-hmm. show. Uh, uh, when's the next book out? Yeah. You know, well, and this one so. here, it says, set in a fictional California coastal town, Murder at Full Moon tells the story of a community gripped by fear after a series of gruesome murders takes place Werewolf. under a full moon. Investigators fear that a supernatural monster has emerged from the nearby marshes. Its characters include a cub reporter, a mysterious man who runs a local gun club, and an eccentric amateur sleuth who sets out to solve the crime using techniques based on his obsession with pulp detective fiction. 
TypeScript even has two illustrations by Steinbeck. They depict the floor plan of the building where the murders took place, including the victims' bodies. In the book, these are drawings made by one of the characters trying to solve the murders. Uh, he used the pen name Peter Pym. And I immediately think, oh, Pym particles. <laughs> but I'm like, nope, not in this book. Um, but it's it's interesting because they're saying here that you know the Steinbeck the Steinbeck estate won't publish it, right? And uh, you know, literary agents Macintosh and Otis told the Observer they would not be publishing the novel. Quote: As Steinbeck wrote "Murder at Full Moon" under a pseudonym and did not choose to publish the work during his lifetime, we uphold what Steinbeck had wanted, they said. As the estate's agents, we do not further exploit the works beyond what had been the author and estate's wishes. However, uh, this professor points out, Steinbeck did attempt to have the book published early in his career, and he did not destroy the manuscript as he did with the other two that he wrote, uh, and several others. He says, many authors have their works published posthumously and write under pseudonyms. So Jones is making the case that, hey, you know, Steinbeck tried to get this thing published, and for whatever reason at the time, it was rejected. But now you have a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, Nobel Prize winning, you know, all of these, all of this acclaim and fame. This is John Steinbeck. Publishers would leap at this. And I think well, that I think it would it would find an audience. I think people would look at it and go, John Steinbeck wrote a werewolf book. I'm intrigued. I want to read it. And you would have and, and it could maybe possibly open up the works of John Steinbeck to people who might not otherwise read John Steinbeck. I mean, I don't have any interest in reading of mice and men. I keep telling myself, well, you probably should read it. But I don't read it. But I would probably read a John Steinbeck werewolf novel just to get a feel for what kind of story he would write. And they were saying this is not, you know, this is not John Steinbeck, the, the, the realist who's writing all of this stuff. But, you know, his, his approach is still what is the nature of man type of thing, mm. which still fits into the style of what this book is, according sure. to people who've seen it. So it's really interesting that the estate, the, the agents don't want to pursue this. I can understand so they're, they're, they're extrapolating a little bit, but still. Well, but you, you run into, a, you run into interesting questions here because there are some authors who we know their work, despite the fact they didn't want us to. Mm-hmm. They tried to destroy their own work, and some of their most celebrated work that we know is stuff they never wanted to see the light of day. Uh, you look at, uh, oh, I don't know, Franz Kafka, The Metamorphosis. Yeah. He tried to have all of his work destroyed. Uh, Robert Lewis Stevenson destroyed his first version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If he had not been convinced to write another version... We would have never have gotten it. Well, and how how much how much effort has George Lucas put into destroying the holiday special? 
Not enough because it's out there in <laughs> the world. Sorry, George. But, well, um, but to the, your point, to your point though, the, you know, the fact that at least one copy exists means that it's out there, and and depending on a lot of different factors, you know, the 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 fame and the notoriety of the creator and the interest from the audience for for his other work and all that other stuff, you could probably gauge how much interest, how well a, a particular work would perform, even if it's not one of the better known works or if it's not me. Sure. I mean, how much, how much stuff did Tolkien leave unfinished mm-hmm. or Frank Herbert, you know, it, it, there, there are these pieces or George R. R. Martin, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> He's never going to finish that book. He's folks. Ne- oh, it's never happening. He's folks. never going to finish that book. But he's not going to die. He's not going to die. He's going to outlive you all, but he's never going to finish the series. He, well, actually what probably will happen is that George R.R. Martin will pass and Keith Richards will finish the book. Or Betty White. Keith Richards and Betty White. When the heat death of the universe arrives, Keith Richards will be there going, it's getting a little, a little warm. See, I th- I still think we ought to do that story. <laughs> I don't disagree. The, the last the last survivors of Earth. Keith but I Richards. think that you know I think <laughs> Betty White, Keith Richards. But you know the and 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 the estate has a position that we don't, which is quite frankly, you know, they may actually have something from him saying. You know, I decided I didn't want to destroy it, but I don't really want anyone to see it. Yeah, and but you'd so, think they would say that then. We well, have, we it, have it, a document. Probably, we have it's probably isn't things that says, there's something that says that, probably, but yeah. I mean, it, it, it could exist. And I just, you know, I mean, I want to I want to read it because I like the premise. I listen to the it's the the blurb on the back of the book is intriguing to me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I can I I do understand why and some of these some of these organizations view things as protecting the legacy of the author Mm. and when you have someone who is known for all of this and here's this outlier yeah um an example that that especially because we're getting it we're getting a tv series based off it and and she was huge in the in the um huge in the 80s and 90s. Anne Rice, you know, her vampire books, you know, Vampire Lestat, Interview the Vampire, Queen of the Damned, these were all huge. Um, But that's not the only stuff that she wrote. Now, her popularity has, has waxed and waned, but one of the earlier things that she got really well known for uh, under a pen name um, that she, I think, tried to get pulled from print, but then it was way too late. Um, she wrote three extremely graphic sex novels um, set in a, well, it's a riff off of uh, Sleeping Beauty. Uh, in fact, I believe one of them is called The Taming of Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. And just let your mind go, folks, because <laughs> you can't, I've I've read one of them, i I was a big Anne Rice fan back in the day. 
And I was like, what is this? Oh my God. I'm too, I'm too, too young to read this. You're 30. I'm too young to read this. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and roll a care, I think they're out there in the world, folks. If you want to find them, they exist. Uh, if you're an Anne Rice fan or an erotica fan, then knock yourselves out. Um, well, and but they even made a movie out of one of them, Exit to Eden. So that was not one of her Sleeping Beauty books, but yes, no, that's but, uh, but and, yeah, and that's, even that one. And and uh, Exit to Eden is a terrible adaptation, terrible adaptation <laughs> of of that particular of the novel it's based on. But yes, it's yeah. it's a much more. It's a that that novel but, is a very different thing than what people would expect. Dana Delaney, but, though, but you know what? At the at her later stuff, she she was writing religious fiction. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, she, her you know her 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 own personal religious beliefs uh, influenced her writing to the point that she decided that she wanted to do you know fictionalized uh, biographies of 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 well, Jesus was one of them. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's there's you know, uh, but. Um, and, and authors cross genres all the time. You yeah. tend to think of somebody like Ray Bradbury as a fantasist, as the, you know, the, um, uh, cause he's not really a science fiction writer. I mean, he writes stuff that's set in a science fiction setting, but his stuff is very, you know, it, it's science fantasy, kind of like Star Wars is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he also loved mysteries and he wrote mysteries. Isaac Asimov was a prolific mystery writer. Uh, and, and you think, you know, you get these ideas of who these people are and what they write and, you know, they, they are, they're not just, some of these writers aren't just one thing. I mean, Stephen King's an example of that now because he writes dramas. He, he's writing things like, you know, the Shawshank Redemption is a novella, but it's in that vein of a quote unquote great American novel it's a drama about a man in prison. It's not genre, right? Um, specifically, but King also built up an audience of. And here's 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 I think one of the things that genre readers have a real benefit from, Be, whether it's Anne Rice or Stephen King or Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore or pick a dozen, you know, well, Asimov or Bradbury or Heinlein or anybody. Yeah. You, when you become fans of those authors and as prolific as they are, you kind of start picking stuff up just because it's got their name on it. I did, and, that, I did that with David Weber because, you know, he writes all of the Honor Harrington stuff. And he had this new book out. It was part of, it was the beginning of a new series. It's called Out of the Dark. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll pick this up because it's it's alien invasion stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And about a third, maybe about two-thirds of the way into the book, the vampires show up to fight the aliens. And the whiplash I got when... Wait, what? You heard the record skip? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do, Weber? What are these? Are you are you seriously putting vampires in an alien invasion? And he was. He, he, He's not the first one to do that. There's I can't remember who it is. 
um, but there was a Dracula, it might have been a short story or a novella, mm. where Dracula, the, the world is invaded and Dracula wakes up and he's like, oh no, this is my planet. Yeah. Um, but, but it was so unexpected coming from David Weber because, you know, military science sure. fiction. And now suddenly vampires versus aliens. I was like, okay, I can wrap my head around this, but it's going to, you got to give me a minute. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where you, when an author you're used to does something completely unexpected, you either can roll with it or it just completely knocks you out of being able to appreciate it. Well, and you can also fall into a middle ground. Um, one of an author who I really, really enjoy his early works, his more recent stuff, September 11th broke him. And he got very, some real, real xenophobia in his later books. Dan Simmons, he's a fantastic writer in his early books. Uh, if you, if you, um, you know, he's gotten any miniseries, um, his Hyperion series, uh, his, his first stories were, his first book was a, a, um, a Song of Kali, which is a, a horror story set in in the east um carrion comfort which is a different kind of uh, vampire novel uh and then he wrote the hyperion contest which is this really I mean, sweeping space opera big ideas and and it's been in development hell as a film adaptation for a long time it really needs to be like a you know prestige series because it's they're huge they're huge books um, and so he's got this, he's, you know, he's this science fiction writer. He's this fantasy writer. He's this horror writer. And then he starts writing mystery novels Yeah, and you're like, hang on. And they're not bad. Um, I, I read the first few of them. Um, but like I said, he got into, um, his Olympus series, which is, which deals with, uh, the gods of Olympus being recreated in the future and Mars, and I mean, it's a science fiction novel with all kinds of crazy, neat stuff. Um, but about a third of the way through it, you start to realize that he's got a got a thing he wants to tell you, and that he wants to hit you over the head with it. And it's yeah. the books are still good. I mean, I I, I highly recommend Dan Simmons um, as a writer, but his later books have a definite viewpoint, and yeah. you either are going to enjoy the books with that viewpoint or you're going to find them really disappointing you. Yeah. Um, but um, he branched over into mystery and he wrote these really solid mystery thrillers that, you know, you did not expect. You've got this guy who's doing these incredibly deep uh, science fiction stories about big ideas. And then here's a story about a guy who's investigating a plane crash because people died and it, turns into a thing and you're like okay fine i mean it's so much more grounded mm -hmm. and maybe that was the appeal to him is okay. that to write you know you do these big ideas yeah. let's do some small ideas and stories about you know very personal loss and fear and that sort of stuff so well in this one here uh mrs boss mentions this one this is i didn't even know this was out the andromeda evolution it's a sequel to the andromeda strain by michael crichton 
And it, it appears that you have this author, Daniel H. Wilson, who was brought in to complete it, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, recruited by Crichton's wife. Daniel Wilson writes stories about robots. That's his, his thing. So for this alien microbe type of thing, this is not something that normally you would expect from Daniel Wilson. So sure. it's kind of the same, same kind of thing. But at the same time, though, you think about John Steinbeck writing a werewolf novel, and that is just so intriguing. Yes, it's out of his wheelhouse. It's not what he normally does, but it's it's different enough. And the fact now that we have a much broader acceptance of genre as a whole sure. science fiction fantasy superheroes comic book stories and all of that it's we we're not you know we're not the geeks in the basement who get bullied in on the playground not much anymore i mean there's still probably a little bit of that but the the derision sure that we got when we were kids is not entirely out there anymore and and you've got this uh william Souter, author of the acclaimed 2020 biography mad at the world the life of john steinbeck also urged the estate to allow publication he says why wouldn't a complete novel by a famous author find its way into the daylight there is one possibility that we haven't mentioned and that is the agents and the estate may go we just don't think it's any good. Well, there could be that. I mean, and and they wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, early novels, some early novels are amazing. Some early novels are Or it may, you know, here's the thing. He may not have, he may not have found that voice. Yeah. That voice that made Steinbeck Steinbeck. Well, and and this Gavin Jones, uh, this professor in in England, he speculates that maybe it was deemed too lurid at the time. Oh my! Oh well, you know, nineteen thirty. Werewolves are, you know, yeah. Potentially, I mean, now if it was if it was a vampire story, then sure, but you know, because yeah, they're all about sex. Yeah, but yeah, a werewolf. Uh, okay, well, blood and gore, werewolves. violence. Maybe. Oh yeah. Well, and and more than more than one um, author has has taken the monthly cycle and and played into uh, uh, exploring these women's issues mm. through the metaphor of the werewolf. Um, Alan Moore uh, did uh, a particularly disturbing Swamp Thing issue back in the day uh, that was so well done and just really a lot more about a woman and her life than about the werewolf that she became. Um, so there's some fascinating stuff. But, you know, Steinbeck is hardly the only author to do something you don't expect. Um, yeah. You know, Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond. Yeah. Also the author of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Children's story about a flying car. And a, and, and a, and a, that, oh... What was that character? The one who locked them all up. He was creepy. Oh, well, yeah. He was creepy. I, <laughs> as, as much fun as the car is, that story is dark. 
It well, really, yes, the story can, is dark. The film, the film is a romp. The film yeah, is but, a romp. But the movie gets dark at times too. Well, it gets it gets dark for a given value of dark, but no, it's it's darker than you would necessarily expect. Yeah. But you know, so you have other you have other authors who have done this before. Philip Roth. Now, this book was not terribly well received. Philip Roth, of course, who did Portnoy's Complaint, um, uh, also did a novel called The Plot Against America, which is a historical science historical alternate universe novel, mm-hmm. um, where basically Roosevelt loses the nineteen forty election to to Charles Lindbergh, and of course, Charles Lindbergh was a lot more sympathetic to Hitler than than Roosevelt was. And so the arc of American history from that point changes. And we just talked not too long ago about alternate history novels. Yeah. Um, now, this was not his best novel, Roth. I, mean, I think there are folks who enjoyed it because they enjoy Roth. But I think it didn't necessarily do particularly well with the wider audience. I think it may have been... when you, Sometimes you build up these authors and they branch over into something else, it's too far right. for, to take their audience with them. And um, Philip Roth, for his, a lot of his stuff is so very almost internal. Mm-hmm. I've read yeah. a couple of Philip Roth books. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I think he's, he think he's all right. But um, it's, there's a lot more inner life to the stories of, of Philip Roth. And historical alternate history yeah. is a big step. I mean, if, if that's if that's why you're reading Roth and that's why you enjoy his stuff, this isn't necessarily. He's not writing. He's writing it for a different audience. That's great. But it it, it apparently didn't land well. Sure. I have not read it. I can't speak to it to the quality of the work. Um, but you know. Well, uh, and generally speaking, it's not it's not one of his best regarded novels. I I had a thought run through my head a, a particular title, and now it's it's trying to escape. I'm I'm reaching to to see if I can grab hold of it uh, before it goes away completely. But um, no, it's gone. But there was a you know there there have been those those books. That, like you said, they're they're outside the wheelhouse of what you expect from a particular author. Uh, sometimes that can work out, and sure. you find a completely new audience with some of the stuff that you write. Um, well, you you look at somebody like like Margaret Atwood, Handmaid's Tale, yeah. hugely successful TV series. I mean, just you know, people talk about this show. every time a new season comes out. People talk about this show. Mm-hmm. You know, great performances, really well written. Margaret Atwood built her career on other things. The Handmaid's Tale might be what made her famous with a larger audience, but she was already famous as an author writing other kinds of books. And, you know, that was the book that put her on, certainly it put her on the map with genre fans. And, but it also, it's, it's also an intensely literary novel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I'm going to say that it's one of the most well crafted literary dystopian futures. Right. Um, you know, so in, in terms of, uh, if you're, if you're looking for a book that straddles the line between genre and great American novel, that's one of them because she's, she's just that kind of writer. It was, it was Mark Twain. 
Oh, yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. I, I mean, Mark Twain, humorist, wrote, you know, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and a time travel story. And a fairly grim time travel story. Yeah. Unless, unless it gets reinterpreted as unidentified flying oddball. <laughs> well, unless that, yes. Yes. Which, it's funny, and I, I think we've talked about this before. Mindy and I watched that uh, not too long ago because she'd never seen it. And I, it's been forever in a day since I've seen it. And sure. for the most part, I was actually rather surprised at how well it holds up. It doesn't hold up well, but it holds up better than I expected it to. And the ending is a little... Well, it's not it's not terribly abrupt, but it kind of ends in a place where we're like, oh, okay, we're going to end it there. But you know, this uh, there's there is no story past the point where it sto- where it ends anyway. But uh, you know, it was like, yeah, this is based on a Mark Twain story of all things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that people would accept a John Steinbeck werewolf book. Well, I think that the the biggest step they could have taken is the one that has just happened, which is, hey, guys, yeah. there's this book, and they don't want you to read it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I wonder how much of a public push there will be for this now. Well, certainly from an academic side, and this is one of those things where the folks who study Mm. American literature. The fact, the fact that we have, and 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 I think it kind of does matter that it's a British academic, somebody who studies this in the UK, who studies American literature, because it's really, really easy to not always see the benefit in your own backyard. Right. Where the, you know, we, whereas we can look at some of this stuff and go, I don't relate to it. Um, people are studying it on an academic level elsewhere the same way that we do with British literature or Russian literature or French literature or, you know, um, uh, East Indian literature. We look at these different things and we look at them from an academic standpoint mm-hmm. or in exploring the factors like we do with over on, on foreign bodies with, with foreign horror films. We are getting exposed to this for the, the first time. It's new to us. Yeah, and it may be it may be old news there, and it might be you know grapes of wrath for for that country, and they're like, oh god, I want to. They made me read this in high school, but it's new to us, and so it has a certain amount of of, of novelty value, if nothing else, but also the fact that if you're interested in exploring another culture, yeah, and and we speak the same language more or less. But you're, you know, the the UK and America has differences in our culture, and and that's there's still room to explore there. And so the fact that you've got somebody outside looking in and going, well, we want to read it, you know, then 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 you get us, you get the genre fans going. Did you say werewolf novel? Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, depending on how much traction 
this story gets now, I mean, certainly you're going to have people, you're going to have podcasts discussing it like it was like we're doing tonight. Sure. You're going to have academics uh, circling the wagons on this and saying, we really want to see this. We're curious. And, and to be, to be completely frank, whether it's good or not, I think is secondary to the fact that it exists and people sure. want to see what it is. They want to examine the thing. They're not going to make a value judgment on it right from the right from the get-go. They just want to see it. Right. This is a John Steinbeck werewolf novel. The novelty of it is going to be the the first aspect of the discussions. The fact that we we okay, in order for us to judge it on its merits, good or bad, compare it to the rest of his work, all of those different angles that you could take. Mm -hmm. First, we have to see it. It needs to be out there. And who knows, maybe somebody does like they just did with this, uh, this Star Wars book that was out, you know, somebody will bootleg it and throw it up on Amazon for a week and get it while it's hot and, and just you know, scram mad scramble to, to get your copy before before it gets pulled. Well, see, the, the thing is, is that if they can keep up the, the momentum, it becomes a marketing tool for the publisher. Yeah. And it's going to come down, folks. It's, it's just going to come down to whether or not the publisher thinks that it's going to make money for them. If they do, uh, well, and, and, and then they can lean into the limited run. We're only oh, sure. going to do five thousand copies, and 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 make it rare, which adds to the appeal. Well, there's only five thousand of them. I better get mine now, and and people snap them up. Oh well, this sold so well. We're going to do another five thousand more. You know, sure. and, and and do that. I mean, there's there's different ways that you can make it work, but I am genuinely curious, and and. And it surprises me that I'm genuinely curious about a John Steinbeck book now. Well, it's the thing is, is that he wrote something in a genre that you enjoy. Yeah. And that he gives you, you've gotten a certain amount of... Although, to, well, be, to, to be fair, crossover I'm, appeal. I'm not a big horror fan. Well, but, but it's, I'm you know, still curious about this. It's a werewolf story. mystery. I mean, yeah. come on. How I, can you go wrong? It's like, you know... A vampire western. How? Really? Yes. Well, unfortunately, we've had those and Yui Bull made them, and we don't talk about those because they're <laughs> terrible. Terrible. One of these days, we'll have to make one. You know, I have got, I've got an idea for a western. It's just the budget would be yeah. prohibitive. Well, and and speaking of which, any anybody who would like to uh, support us in that way, uh, and and add to our budgets, we do have a PayPal link. I don't I don't push this very often. I should probably more than I do, uh, but we do have a PayPal link there, and then also uh, we've got the um, we've got the Subscribe Star account, which is uh, active. I. I need to update it. There are so many different hats that I wear here. Managing the Subscribestar account is kind of low on the totem pole, but I do need to uh, I do need to manage that. And and the PayPal is just a direct thing. 
those are ways that uh, anybody who's interested can financially support us without YouTube taking their 55%. Uh, but, uh, but it's, it's not an obligation, certainly. It's one of those things. So, uh, no party weekends. No we promise. No, no party weekends. Uh, now, you guys uh, didn't have a party, but you did have a discussion. The latest uh, uh, tartar sauce dropped on Saturday. That that's a wrong graphic. I need to fix that one. It was Saturday. Uh, you want to you want to talk about that here for just a second? Let me. Uh, sure. We talk about. We actually went back in time. It was the 16th uh, anniversary of um, uh, The Empty Child, which is, of course, one of the best of the first season of the revived Doctor Who back in 2005. Um, it also led into a discussion about some of the unfortunate news that's coming out about uh, uh, Noel Clark, who played Mickey in the early seasons of the new series, and some of the behavior of John Barrowman on set. So we discuss some of the less than great news coming out and its impact on, on what's going on in terms of uh, John Berriman has stuff going on in the Doctor Who universe and some of that stuff has now been at, at the very least put on hold. Yeah. Uh, and and it's really the, the controversy and, and Clark's behavior is really impacting his career. So um, it's not it's not the, the that most upbeat of discussion, but it is, it's something, you know, well, these are, it's, these are it folks who are part of the world that we discuss. And I think that, that it, uh, it comes up in the news and it's, and it's, it's something that is uh, a legitimate, uh, it's a legit, yeah, it's interest. A, so it's a legitimate discussion yeah. to have. Um, luckily the news that Kevin Spacey's got a new movie coming out. It isn't a science fiction, <laughs> fantasy or horror film. So we can, not talk about that. That's that's a that's a weird one. Yeah, to hear about that, it just mm, I don't know. I, yeah. So uh, coming up tomorrow, we've got a new Salacious Crumbs with the latest news in the Star Wars universe. Nine p.m. Eastern, eight Central uh, for that. And then we have uh, tomorrow. Uh, let me see here. Let me put that in there and that in there. Uh, live from the bunker tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central. And I'm hoping to hear back. We were going to pre-record a conversation tonight for tomorrow, and I haven't heard back. We haven't been able to connect. So I don't know what our topic is going to be tomorrow. And then Douglas Ernst will be a guest on Wednesday, and we'll have no show on Thursday, uh, no Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday, no Foreign Bodies on Saturday, no Bunker on Monday or Tuesday next week, no H2O next week because of the holiday. So uh, we are going to post various different things on social media to update people on the schedules. Uh, so you're all invited to check out all of the socials and uh, connect with us over there if you haven't yet. If you miss us... There's a lot of content on this very YouTube channel that you are watching. If you're watching this live or watching the video instead of just yes. listening to the podcast, uh, there's lots of content here. And if you're listening to the podcast, there's lots of content there. If you haven't yes. heard every single episode, well, and you, you know, complete us. I've been looking. I've been looking at the map, and we have people listening to this show as a podcast from all over the world. I'm seeing uh, Australia. Sure. Germany, England, or, or the UK, Ireland, uh, Russia, Malaysia. I've seen uh, Taiwan, uh, 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 Japan, 
France, Spain, you know, we, I, we've got people listening to us all over the world, and we appreciate every single one of you who comes yes, back. thank you, folks. And uh, those of you who are new, we hope you stick around. Uh, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel. And I also want to make sure that you uh, know that we have uh, this mirrored, I guess you could say. It's not really, they're not connected, but we're broadcasting also to Odyssey, and it's part, I guess you could say we're part of the beta test because we're one of the first people that got the live stream functionality. And I've been doing a lot of back and forth with Tom at Odyssey about the technical aspects and the, well, okay, how does this work? And I ran into this and I did this and this happened and did this and that happened. What's supposed there was a to fire, happen? There was fire, there was rain, and there was. And so far, things seem to be smoothing out. Every now and again, we'll get a little a little hiccup over there, but uh, we do want to build up our audience over on Odyssey because you never know. YouTube could be shut down tomorrow uh, by the United Nations. They decide they just had enough. You know, it's all sorts of weird scenarios, but you know, we get, we, we've set up on all of these different social media sites just as a, as a, you know, don't put our eggs in one basket type of thing. But Odyssey seems to be holding up pretty stable at this point. Uh, we've got, I think 50, 51 followers over there. So that number could go higher. Be nice. Be nice. And we've got 91 followers on Twitch. We get to a hundred. We're gonna start our watch parties. We're gonna pull out the pull out the popcorn, and <coughs> we'll see what happens there. So, and some movies of questionable taste, and probably none of them will have hot tubs. Probably, <laughs> no promises. We did that. We did that already. Yeah. All right. I'm pretty sure that if we were to do the original Toxic Avenger, there's a hot tub scene. Well, and there's hot tub time machine. Right, right. It's it's a little more violent in mm. the Toxic Avenger, yeah, um, than hot tub time machine. But uh, we'll think whatever of works, whatever works for you, folks. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. Uh, we'll do it again sometime. So two weeks from now for this show, and uh, but like I said, we're. You know, Connect with us on the socials so you know what's going on. We do have a newsletter you can sign up for as well over at scififormeat.com. And uh, we will be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks, folks. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.